Due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder and violence. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. Author Stephen Dudley profiled an MS-13 member who he called Norman, who joined the gang in El Salvador in 1994. Less than a year later, Norman had his first brush with death. One night, during a fight with the rival 18th Street gang, he was hit in the head with a machete. Miraculously, he ended up recovering. The incident was a turning point. It convinced him to leave the gang behind and start over in the U.S. Norman's brothers and sisters pooled their money to smuggle him across the border. For a while, he lived with a sister, worked at a Tex-Mex restaurant, and started going to church. But less than a year later, Norman's mother fell ill, and he felt he had to go home to take care of her. Back in El Salvador, Norman tried to steer clear of gang life, but it was a small town and it was impossible to avoid his old rivals. Soon enough, Norman ran into a group of 18th Street members who recognized him as MS-13. The fact that he distanced himself from the gang made no difference to them. One of the rival gangsters stabbed him in the stomach. Norman was clashing with what sociologist Robert Brenneman calls the morgue rule. In Norman's words, in the gang, there was only one way to enter, and I already knew how the departure was. There is no departure, but rather they assassinate you. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Tuesday, we look at a cult's practices, their leader, and their followers. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This time, we're continuing our investigation into a group that isn't exactly a cult, the street gang Mara Salvatrucha, better known as MS-13. While it isn't a religious group, the gang shares some of the hallmarks of a typical cult, an in-group ideology, strict initiation rituals, and a grip on members that makes it nearly impossible to leave. Last time, we looked into how the gang formed and why members joined. This time, we'll examine why members choose to leave and how difficult that can be. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. A new true crime podcast from the team behind Up and Vanished. In 2016, adventurer Justin Alexander was invited on a trek by an Indian holy man. They headed to a spiritual ground in the Himalayan mountains, a place beyond civilization. The holy man returned and said nothing, but Justin was never seen again. What happened to him? Dive into our investigation in Status Untraced. Available now. Listen for free on Spotify. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. 
Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. In the early to mid-90s, immigrants were deported from the U.S. to Central America en masse. They brought various aspects of U.S. culture back, music, movies, and gangs. Last time, we discussed how many of MS-13's founding members were sent to El Salvador, where the decade-long civil war was just coming to a close. Some of their rival gangs were deported, too. It wasn't long before the political violence was replaced by gang violence. If MS-13 was difficult to escape in Los Angeles, it was all but impossible in El Salvador. According to sociologist Robert Brenneman, quote, Most gang members are told when they join one of Central America's transnational gang cells that their new commitment must last all the way to the morgue. It's typical for cults to manipulate members into feeling like they can't or aren't allowed to leave. But with gangs, where violence is a part of daily life, all the way to the morgue isn't an empty threat. Members who try to leave are often killed in retaliation. But staying in the gang also means risking death daily. It's a catch-22. Take Alex Sanchez, for example. Thanks to his long criminal record in the States, the 21-year-old was deported to El Salvador in 1994. But Sanchez had been living in L.A. since he was seven years old. He barely knew anyone in El Salvador, except for his fellow gang members. And thanks to his gang tattoos, it was impossible for him to get a job. In a 2018 article, Jonathan D. Rosen and Jose Miguel Cruz examined the difficulties facing gang members in El Salvador. Discrimination in the workforce was a major challenge for those who tried to leave the gang behind. One interview subject even recounted having to take off his shirt at a job interview so the employer could see whether he had incriminating tattoos. As time went on, Sanchez grew tired of gang life. He had a baby son in L.A. He yearned to get back home and be a father. But with no other connections or job opportunities, MS-13 was all he had. So he fell back into the same pattern he'd followed in L.A., banding together with fellow gang members, living on the streets, and committing petty crimes to survive. But the consequences of gang life were far more dangerous than they were in L.A., Soon, Sanchez found himself targeted by a vigilante death squad called La Sombra Negra. La Sombra Negra sprung up in the mid-90s in response to the recent wave of gang activity. In 1995, they were connected to three dozen murders in the span of three months. They targeted suspected criminals, particularly those who were recently deported from the U.S. One morning, Sanchez awoke to find a body hanging outside, not far from his home. It was a warning. La Sombra Negra had posted flyers on doors in the neighborhood with a list of known gang members, and Sanchez's name was on it. He knew his life was on the line. He had to get out of El Salvador. After two failed attempts at crossing the border, he finally re-entered the U.S. in 1995, just a year after his deportation. Back in L.A., Sanchez tried to distance himself from MS-13. After the life-threatening danger he faced in El Salvador, he was ready to get out and turn his life around, especially now that he was reunited with his girlfriend and baby son. And the gang accepted his budding family as a reason to step back. In an interview with the Daily Mail, Sanchez recalled, quote, I said, maybe I can stay out for a year, maybe I can stay out and be a father to my kid. They saw that I couldn't be actively involved in their daily gang activities, so they left me alone. He was still technically a member for life, 
but eventually Sanchez was considered a calmado, retired. While in El Salvador, he'd been introduced to Magdaleno Rose Avila, who'd founded an organization called Homies Unidos. The group was created by gang members in El Salvador who wanted to end the violence plaguing their streets. The next year, Sanchez helped organize an L.A. chapter of Homies Unidos, meeting at Emanuel Presbyterian Church in Koreatown. The group gave free meals and educational programs to local gang members. Sanchez eventually became the executive director of the organization. As surprising as it might sound, Sanchez's anti-gang activism wasn't a problem within MS-13. Plenty of active members came to Homies Unidos for the free food, even if they had no intention of leaving the gang life. But though the gang was willing to accept Sanchez's new direction, the road ahead was still difficult. Ex-cult members often have a difficult time reintegrating into society, but they're generally treated with sympathy once they leave the group behind. Ex-gang members, on the other hand, are constantly seen as active threats. They can't erase their criminal records, and they're often one parole violation away from being sent back to jail. In a study on gangs in San Diego, former gang members said they were still targeted by local police officers who recognized them. The fear of being rearrested due to gang injunctions made it hard for them to reinsert themselves into the community. Sanchez experienced this firsthand. Even after he stepped back from the gang, he continued to be targeted by the LAPD's Rampart Division, particularly the CRASH Unit, an acronym for Community Resources Against Street Hoodlums. CRASH led the LAPD's most aggressive anti-gang efforts in the 80s and 90s. The officers knew Sanchez well and didn't believe his conversion was genuine. One officer accused him of using Homies Unidos as a front to expand MS-13's political power. According to author Stephen Dudley, Sanchez's lawyers claimed there was another reason he was targeted too. He was a witness in an ongoing homicide case. He claimed that the suspect was at a Homies Unidos event at the time of the murder. The police wanted him deported before he could testify. Crash officers started following Sanchez everywhere. They accosted him outside the church after Homies Unidos meetings. On one occasion, they showed up at his friend's birthday party, clubbed him in the head, and harassed the other guests. These weren't isolated incidents. Throughout the late 90s, several officers in the Rampart Crash Unit were arrested for crimes ranging from bank robbery to fabricating evidence. In September 1999, one arrested crash officer confessed everything he knew in exchange for immunity. He implicated about 70 officers in misconduct and claimed that 90% of crash officers were, quote, in the loop. That same month, California Congressman Tom Hayden held a panel on police misconduct at Emanuel Presbyterian Church, the meeting place of Homies Unidos. Sanchez testified for the press about his own experiences with the Rampart Crash Unit. Meanwhile, crash officers were standing in the back of the church, listening. According to Hayden, as the crowd filed out after the panel, the officers frisked attendees and arrested several of them. Sanchez managed to escape out a side door. In the coming months, Crash was disbanded. The city of L.A. ultimately paid out $125 million in more than 140 lawsuits including one that was filed by Homies Unidos. But Sanchez wasn't out of the woods yet. Shortly before Crash disbanded, in January 2000, he was arrested and turned over to the Immigration and Naturalization Service. He was slated for deportation. 
In the wake of the Rampart scandal, the arrest of such an outspoken activist sent shockwaves across the city. That summer, while the Democratic National Convention was meeting in downtown LA, Congressman Hayden helped organize a thousand-person march to the Rampart police station. The marchers carried signs that said, Free Alex. Meanwhile, Sanchez organized a hunger strike inside the deportation center in solidarity with a group of Cubans who'd been stuck in detention for years. Though Sanchez had entered the country without authorization, he argued for political asylum, afraid he'd be killed if he was deported to El Salvador. And against all odds, he won the case. He was allowed to stay in the U.S. By all measures, Alex Sanchez should have been a poster child for reformed gang members. He had dedicated his life to helping young people leave gangs. He stood up against police abuses. He was publicly hailed as a hero. This should be the happy ending, where he finally escaped the gang once and for all. But even if you do everything possible to turn your life around, the past still has a way of catching up with you. After winning his fights against the LAPD and immigration officials, Sanchez had one major battle on the horizon, this time against the FBI. Coming up, the feds close in on MS-13. Hi, I'm Ashley Flowers, the creator and host of the true crime podcast, Crime Junkie. And you might remember me from a few podcast shows like Supernatural, International Infamy, or Very Presidential. I'm popping in to tell you about my new book that I think all of you true crime fans will not be able to put down. It's called All Good People Here, and it's officially out right now. It's a mystery about a journalist who returns to her small hometown and becomes obsessed with trying to solve a kidnapping that she thinks could be linked to a decades-old unsolved murder. It is full of twists and turns and will leave you on the edge of your seat until the very last page. Grab your copy of All Good People Here now, wherever books are sold. Now, back to the story. After Crash was disbanded in 2000, the LAPD's anti-gang work was taken over by the FBI. The Bureau started putting together a case against MS-13 under the RICO Act, the same racketeering and conspiracy law that was used against the Mafia in the 70s. RICO allows the government to prosecute anyone who participates in organized crime. The FBI put one man at the top of the gang's organization chart, a leader they branded as the CEO of MS-13, Nelson Komandari. Nelson Komandari wasn't your typical gang member. He was born into a powerful family in El Salvador. His grandfather had been a major right-wing political figure during the Civil War, and his family was involved in a wide array of legitimate and illegal businesses, including drug trafficking. In 1996, the 19-year-old Comandari did a brief stint in jail in El Salvador for drugs and weapons charges. As soon as he got out, he moved to L.A., where he started working with MS-13's Hollywood Locos clique. With his money and connections, Comandari quickly became a leader. Comandari had ambitions. He wanted to turn the disorganized gang into a sophisticated drug operation. According to author Stephen Dudley, he tried to establish a system similar to other organized crime outfits. Everyone in the supply chain, from wholesalers to dealers, would pay a fee to MS-13 for the right to sell drugs in their territory. In exchange, the gang offered protection. Before long, Komandari had taken over the drug market in several parts of L.A. His next step was to go national. By the year 2000, MS-13 had spread not just to other countries, 
but 33 different states as well. The local cliques were still mostly autonomous, operating without much coordination, but with the support of the Mexican Mafia, Comandari tried to pull them together into a nationwide drug trafficking operation. We have to emphasize he wasn't very successful. Underneath the violence and petty crime, at heart, MS-13 was still a social club for teenage stoners. In the words of researcher Stephen Dudley, the members turned out to be inept at drug smuggling and resistant to the whole idea. Other MS-13 leaders were suspicious of Komandari's ambition, and he in turn was frustrated by the gang's lack of discipline. This led to internal friction. According to law enforcement, Komandari killed at least five of his own gang members in the span of four years, including one of his lieutenants. The infighting was a boon to the FBI. Shortly after their investigation began in 2000, Komandari's right-hand man, aptly nicknamed Dopey, was arrested. He flipped in no time and became a valuable informant. Komandari could tell the dominoes were falling. He laid low and managed to evade arrest until he was finally captured in 2005. Once he was in custody, though, he was eager to talk. Thanks to his testimony, the racketeering case widened to include dozens of MS-13 leaders, including the LAPD's nemesis, Alex Sanchez. But the story of their case against Sanchez really starts with another reformed MS-13 leader, Ernesto Miranda, one of the gang's founding members. Like many of his fellow gangsters, Miranda was deported to El Salvador in the mid-90s. For a while, he helped spread American gang culture to his homeland. But soon, he started to regret what he'd done. When Miranda's first daughter was born, he saw the need to turn his life around. He left the gang, found religion, and dedicated himself to ending gang violence. By the mid-2000s, he was studying law and working for prison reform. He lobbied officials to change El Salvador's harsh anti-gang laws, which had led to mass arrests and dangerous overcrowding in prisons. And through it all, he kept in contact with one of his old friends from L.A., Alex Sanchez. In early 2006, Sanchez asked Miranda for a favor. An MS-13 member named Walter Lachinos was about to be deported to El Salvador, and he needed someone to pick him up from the airport. Miranda agreed. Lachinos had been Sanchez's protege in the early 90s. He'd spent the last nine years behind bars on weapons charges. The gang sent him occasional letters and money, but no one came to visit him. The isolation took a toll on his mental health. While stuck in prison, Lachino started to believe that several MS-13 members were secretly police informants. Specifically, he thought Sanchez and a fellow Normandy Locos member named Zombie had flipped. His suspicions were unfounded, but Lachinos was convinced these so-called traitors were the real cause of his arrest. Once he got out, he was determined to kill them in retaliation. So shortly after his release from jail, when Lachinos was deported to El Salvador, he approached the local MS-13 leaders and asked for the green light to kill Sanchez and Zombie. When the news traveled back to Sanchez in L.A., he was shocked at the false accusations. He immediately met with a group of active MS-13 members, hoping to settle the matter for good. The group got Lachinos on the phone. He tried to defend himself and warned Sanchez not to, quote, get involved in things when you're no longer active. They didn't reach a resolution during the call but the gang's leadership apparently took Sanchez's side. They vowed to cut Lachinos out of their activities. 
The next day, Sanchez called Zombie, the other intended target. Sanchez told him about the threats, but assured him that the gang had his back. He promised Zombie, quote, We can defend you, we are all doing that, and we have said, we go to war. Without the gang's support, Latinos could hardly kill Sanchez, who was thousands of miles away in Los Angeles. But there were other ways to hurt him. A week later, Lachinos shot Ernesto Miranda 10 times in the doorway of his home. Miranda didn't survive. Sanchez claimed that this was an act of revenge. Killing Miranda is as close as Lachinos could get to killing him. Miranda's murder sparked an internal investigation within the gang. Within days, Lachinos himself was killed in retaliation by another MS-13 member. But for Sanchez, the nightmare was just beginning. On May 6, 2006, the same day Sanchez heard about Lachinos' threats, the FBI had installed wiretaps on the phones of several MS-13 leaders in L.A. That meant the calls Sanchez had made to Lachinos and Zombie were both recorded. It's not clear what he meant by go to war in his call with Zombie, but law enforcement took it as an order to kill Lachinos. And in a stroke of coincidence, the man who actually did kill Lachinos was nicknamed Zombie. In reality, this was a completely different zombie who had never even spoken to Sanchez before. But at first, prosecutors wrongly assumed they were the same person. In 2009, a 66-page indictment came down against 24 MS-13 members, including Alex Sanchez. He was on the hook for drug trafficking and conspiring to kill Walter Lachinos all based on the overheard phone calls. He was facing life in prison. Over a hundred people wrote letters to the government in support of Sanchez, including Congressman Tom Hayden. His supporters organized nationwide and pledged over $1 million to secure his release. Nevertheless, he was denied bail twice. At a third bail hearing, which was closed to the public, the judge decided that Sanchez wasn't a danger to the community. Finally, after seven months behind bars, he was granted bail. Meanwhile, the case dragged on for years. But the charges were so flimsy that in 2013, Sanchez's attorney filed a motion to dismiss the case, claiming the government had presented false evidence and lied to the grand jury. Finally, in January 2013, all charges against Sanchez were dropped. He was free to go back to Homes Unidos, where he still serves as an executive director. In the end, Sanchez's story is one of success. He was able to leave the gang life behind and help countless others to do the same. But his case is clearly exceptional. Most don't have an entire community willing to show up in their defense. How many innocent people are sent to jail on dubious evidence simply because the judge believes the police's word over theirs? And how many gang members would go straight if they weren't stuck behind bars? where gang violence is literally inescapable. In a 2017 survey of incarcerated gang members in El Salvador, 77% of MS-13 members said that they'd thought about leaving the gang, the highest percentage among all of the gangs surveyed. But 21% of respondents felt there was no way to leave. According to another 57%, the only way out was to join a religious group or rehabilitation program. Perhaps because Central America is heavily Christian, the church is one of the only institutions the gang respects, and finding God is practically the only acceptable excuse for leaving the gang. 
As cliche as it sounds, even the toughest gangsters can find a road to redemption through religion, including Ernesto Deras, the man once known as Satan. Coming up, we'll look at how religion helps gangsters turn their lives around. Now, back to the story. Ernesto Deras is often blamed for turning MS-13 into a serious criminal enterprise. And after he immigrated to L.A. in 1990, he used his military experience to turn the Fulton Locos into one of the most powerful cliques in the city. Deras was always a fighter, but in 1993, he agreed to a truce with other gang leaders in the San Fernando Valley. It didn't last forever, though. Within a year, the truce was falling apart. But something had changed for Deras. After a lifetime at war, he finally saw the benefits of peace. In 1997, Deras was eating at a restaurant with some fellow MS-13 members. A former gang leader arrived and asked if they wanted to go to church with him. Deras and four of his friends agreed, mostly just as a joke. They laughed their way through mass, and Deras left with no plans to ever come back. But not long afterwards, Deras was chased down that same street by police. He ducked into the church to hide, and this time, the peaceful energy inside started to grow on him. A few days later, he went back to the church again. Soon, he was attending Mass regularly. After the sermon one Sunday, during a moment of silent prayer, Deidas felt an unexplainable force overcome him. He walked toward the front of the church, fell to his knees, and collapsed in tears, begging for forgiveness. That's when he knew he'd found God. When his fellow gang members found out he was going to church, they tried to pull him away at first. But when he kept going, they eventually accepted it on one condition. His conversion had better not be a ruse. Paradoxically, MS-13 members are allowed to retire from the gang if they genuinely find God. But if leaders find out they're just pretending to be religious as an excuse to leave, there will be consequences. Former members are often followed to see if they're truly going to church and living by their new values. For some, the pressure to return to the gang can be too much. But Deidas got out just at the right moment. Shortly after he left, the new leader of the Fulton Locos was killed. Around the same time, the clique's other leaders were deported, and the group as a whole fell apart. Deidas recalled, If they had been there, they would have dragged me back. But there was no one left who could control me. According to sociologist Robert Brenneman, religion can be an effective means for addressing the obstacles to leaving and starting over outside the gang. And this isn't a fringe phenomenon. The majority of the ex-gang members Brenneman interviewed had undergone some kind of religious conversion. In the last episode, we mentioned the similarities between gangs and evangelical churches, the rigid moral rules, distinct lifestyle, and sense of communal identity. Author Stephen Dudley noted that churches can meet many of the same social and material needs that draw young people into gangs in the first place. It's a surrogate family that looks out for one another. They can provide access to food, shelter, and other services. Nightly gatherings give a sense of purpose and belonging. For someone with no support system outside of the gang, finding a community at church can be the difference between getting out and getting pulled back in. After Deras was finally free of the gang, he kept attending church, settled down, and started a family. In 2003, he began working with a gang intervention program, then called Communities in Schools, which was headed by Blinky Rodriguez, 
the same man who had brokered the gang truce a decade earlier. As a counselor in the program, Deras helps other gang members turn their lives around. His story serves as an inspiration for young people who can't imagine a future outside of the gang. There are similar dynamics at play for ex-cult members. Some go through exit counseling with an expert who helps them make sense of what they've been through. Gang intervention counselors fulfill this same role and use many of the same techniques. According to sociologist Yanya Lalich, testimonials from former cult members are particularly persuasive in convincing active members to leave. It's important to show the member that there's a world outside their own and that they have a safe and non-judgmental place to come home to. For many ex-gang members like Dedas, that safe and non-judgmental place is the church. But not everyone has the same experience. For some, joining an organized religion feels too much like trading one bad influence for another. For example, while Homies Unidos once operated inside a church, it's a completely secular organization. Alex Sanchez said, To me, the church looks exactly like the gang. It makes you blind. Yet even with the support of a new community, religious or otherwise, gang members still face challenges when readjusting to life on the outside. Though they might turn their behavior around, they're still permanently marked by gang tattoos and criminal records. As a result, tattoo removal is a focus of many gang intervention programs, but in most cases, it's impossible to wipe clean a criminal record. A single conviction can make it difficult to find a job or even a place to live. Not to mention the ongoing profiling from law enforcement. As we saw with Alex Sanchez, even the most fully reformed gang members are still often presumed to be criminals. Gang intervention counselors are in a particularly tough spot since their jobs require them to keep associating with their old gangs. The line between supporting and enabling active gang members is often blurry. In 2019, a gang intervention counselor with communities and schools was arrested in a federal case against the Fulton Locos clique. The counselor was charged with accessory to attempted murder after helping a teenage mentee hide from the police after a stabbing. As of this recording, his case is still pending. Incidents like this have drawn suspicion from law enforcement, but many officials say that the tight bonds between former and active gang members are what make these intervention programs successful. Blinky Rodriguez was shocked by the communities and schools counselor's arrest. He told the LA Times that the incident shouldn't discredit the decades of good work the program has done. It's hard to measure the impact of intervention programs or any other anti-gang measures, but we do know that after the peak in the early to mid-90s, gang-related homicides fell in L.A. County, leveling out by the 2000s. Fernando Rejon of the Urban Peace Institute attributes this to a shift in policy. Violent crimes started to fall once the local government started investing more money in services for impacted communities. On the flip side, the strategy in El Salvador is a shining example of how not to combat gangs. In 2003, President Francisco Flores created a plan called La Mano Dura, or Iron Fist. The new tough-on-crime policies led to the mass arrest of thousands of suspected gang members. Thus began the same cycle we saw in L.A. The gangs gained power inside the prisons and, in turn, expanded their power in the streets. Over the next decade, violence continued to skyrocket. In response, the government doubled down on the repression. In 2015, three Special Forces battalions were deployed against the gangs. 
the police director instructed his officers to shoot at criminals, quote, with complete confidence. Within months, the violence in El Salvador was at levels that hadn't been seen in decades. Between January 2015 and August 2016, 693 suspected gang members were killed by police. In retaliation, gang members ambushed police officers and set off explosives, killing over 60 officers throughout 2015. The lopsided figures invited scrutiny from the international community. In 2018, a UN report accused Salvadoran police of illegally executing gang members. That same year, four officers in the elite Special Reaction Forces unit were convicted of aggravated homicide. It was a return to the Civil War days in more ways than one. CNN reported that in 2016 and 2017, the Salvadoran police received more than $140 million from the United States. A portion of that funding went to the Special Reaction Forces. Despite the backlash, El Salvador has not just perpetuated, but strengthened its monodura policies. And the hardline measures have continued to fail at stemming gang violence. In March of 2022, El Salvador saw a record-breaking 87 gang-related homicides in 72 hours. The evidence shows that aggressive policing alone just doesn't work for combating gangs. In 2020, Washington Post correspondent Philip Bump found that over the past 60 years, there was no correlation between police spending and crime rates in the United States. Instead, the most effective strategies are proactive helping young people get out of gangs before they commit more crimes. Just like people trapped in cults, gang members may not be able to escape without a viable alternative. This means offering social services like education, job training, and counseling to create a path outside of gang life. In 2008, law enforcement in Montgomery County, Ohio, started a program called the Community Initiative to Reduce Gun Violence. Officials met with local gang members and warned them that if any member of their gang committed a murder, the entire group would be targeted by law enforcement. But they also offered social service programs to any members who decided to leave the gang. The initiative was a success. In less than two years, the rate of gang homicides fell by 64%. There was also a marked increase in ex-gang members seeking social services. Unfortunately, across the country, social services and gang intervention programs tend to be underfunded. Politicians on both sides of the aisle prefer to sink more money into policing and deportation, despite evidence that these tactics don't work. Part of this comes from a tendency to dehumanize gang members, especially when they're immigrants. MS-13 in particular has been the target of widespread fear-mongering, even though it accounts for less than 1% of all gang membership in the United States. When gang members are branded as animals and bloodthirsty killers, it obscures the more complicated reality. They're recruited as children or adolescents. They're isolated and indoctrinated by group mentality. Most of them want to leave the violence behind, and they would if they felt there was any way out. In a 2018 survey of gang members in El Salvador, 88% said that being accepted by the community would be very important in turning their lives around. Unfortunately, this tolerance is hard to come by. One respondent said, quote, those who want to leave the gang need a helping hand. They need someone to help them, but this hand does not exist. As we've seen in this episode, even the most hardened criminals aren't beyond redemption. 
But like cult members, many can't escape unless they're given the right tools. The only way to break the cycle of violence is with compassion. Thanks again for tuning into Cults. We'll be back next Tuesday with a new episode. For more information on MS-13, amongst the many sources we used, we found MS-13, The Making of America's Most Notorious Gang by Stephen Dudley, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Cults is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Jaron Cohen, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Nick Johnson, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of Cults was written by Kate Gallagher, edited by Terrell Wells, fact-checked by Claire Cronin, researched by Brian Petrus and Chelsea Wood, and produced by Travis Clark. Cults stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson.